On June the 6th, 1944, the Second Ranger Battalion, consisting of 225 young American troops, landed on the beaches in Normandy, France. Their orders were to scale a treacherous 100-foot-high cliff known as Point du Hoc. The moment these brave soldiers stepped onto the beach, they came under heavy, intense fire. On top of the cliff, German troops had dug in with heavy-duty artillery. They were now unleashing a massive assault on the Americans. Of the 225 men who tried to scale the cliff that day, tragically, only 99 survived. But when the bullets stopped flying and the smoke cleared, the daring mission had been accomplished. It had been successful. Allied troops were now on European soil. It would be only a matter of time before the continent would be liberated. Today, 74 years later, a bayonet-shaped monument adorns the steep cliff where ranger blood was shed. It memorializes the courageous D-Day sacrifice of our troops. It's now a destination for many ranger families. In 1994, Kathy Wentz brought her nine kids to Point du Hoc. Her father, Richard Wentz, was a lieutenant in the 2nd Battalion. Over the years, Richard never talked about the battle, or at least very much. But just before he died, his family got him to open up and to recount the story. Kathy was stunned at how naive she'd been. She had no idea of the horrors her dad had endured and his heroic show of courage. To help her children appreciate the sacrifices made by the boys at Point du Hoc, which included their granddad, she flew her family to France. And together they stood on the point there at Normandy and they all prayed the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure on D-Day in 1944, the Lord's Prayer was prayed loud and often on the beaches at Normandy. There probably, there wasn't an American GI who didn't at least breathe the Lord's Prayer under his breath. In the heat of battle, you fall back on what you know. All those little boys who had quoted the prayer here in Matthew chapter 6 in Sunday school were now praying it with all the desperation of a soldier fighting for his life. One day, I would like to go to Point du Hoc and pray the Lord's Prayer. Against that backdrop, in light of its history, I think its recitation would be a moving experience, especially when you get to verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For if ever there was a day in history when God's will was done on earth, it had to have been D-Day. The evil Adolf Hitler and his German troops were on a rampage. Countries in Europe were toppling like dominoes as the smell of burning Jewish flesh was rising up from concentration camp smokestacks. If the Allies had lost that day on the beaches of Normandy, we'd probably be speaking German today and eating sauerkraut this week. The American flag would be a swastika instead of the stars and stripes. At Normandy, God answered the prayers of Americans and took up the cause of freedom. His will was done on earth as it is in heaven. 
If ever Almighty God wore red, white, and blue, it was on June the 6th, 1944. But not always has America lined up on God's side. For the first 100 years of our history, legalized slavery stained America's legacy. It was an atrocity for a nation founded on the belief that all men are created equal to deny freedom to a whole segment of its population. It was an inconsistency that defies logic and an evil prejudice that grieved our common creator. More recently, our nation's legalization of abortion and same-sex marriage has defied God's will. Respect for life and sanctity of marriage are godly priorities. And today, how can God be pleased with the failure of our politicians on both sides of the aisle to deal with immigrants lawfully yet compassionately? You see, today, America is hated in Muslim countries, not just because of our politics and our support of Israel, but Islamic fundamentalists despise America because of the filth and the immorality we traffic all over the world. We're seen as a threat to the morality of Arab youth. Muslims watch us legally murder unborn babies in the name of convenience. And they see us export a flood of pornography. Is it any wonder we're the great Satan? Sadly, America is hated for its decadence. See, our nation is a mixed bag. At times we stand for Christian values. At other times we find ourselves God's enemy. And in light of our corruption, for an American to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not just asking God to protect us and to prosper us, but we're asking him to bring revival and to stir us up to repentance and to turn our nation away from its wickedness. God bless America might be a sweet notion, but it's often sung superficially. I'm sure at times God is ashamed of the colors, red, white, and blue. There's one certainty. Father God and Uncle Sam are not the same person. And if old Uncle Sam takes an ungodly position or steers from biblical truth, we need to always side with our father, not our uncle. Once there was a little boy he asked to say the blessing at the evening meal. He closed his eyes, he positioned his hands, he bowed his head, and he prayed. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Well, I wish the USA was so dedicated to God that there was no difference between our prayer and our pledge. But that's not the case. There are occasions when our pledge of allegiance to God puts us in conflict with the policies of our nation. I hope you realize that God's kingdom is distinct and far greater than the United States or any other nation for that matter. The United States is not the world's superpower. The one and only superpower is the kingdom of God. Certainly, our nation has a rich spiritual heritage. The freedoms defined and the United States Declaration of Independence and our Constitution would have never been conceived if not for the Protestant Reformation that preceded them. 
Martin Luther's idea of the priesthood of every believer laid the foundation for the principle of one man, one vote. Our faith taught us that in God's eyes, there's no difference between the plowboy and the king himself. Both come to God on the same basis, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was the fire of the Reformation that gave birth to the idea of democracy. Scotsman Samuel Rutherford wrote a book in 1644 that he entitled Lex Rex, which means law is king. His book was revolutionary. It challenged the political philosophy in Europe at the time. No longer did Rutherford accept Rex Lex or the king is law. He believed that men should be governed by laws, not by other men. Rutherford's ideas were based on the Bible, especially on Moses and the law from Mount Sinai. Ancient Israel was governed by God's law, not the will of a kingly class. A brave Samuel Rutherford concluded that to be governed by a man or by men was nothing but tyranny. Since the law was given by God, no less than the king himself is also subject to the law. When the founding fathers of America gathered for the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Samuel Adams made this statement. We have this day restored the sovereign to whom alone men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven and from the rising to the setting sun may his kingdom come. Adams and the other signers believed that they had restored God, not the king, as their final authority. Where do you think the early Americans got the famous phrase that they wrote into our Declaration of Independence? Certain inalienable rights. Inalienable rights refer to freedoms not conferred by other men or by the state, but unchallengeable, absolute rights bestowed by the creator himself. Realize the notion of freedom has Christian roots. The Bible teaches that God, not man, is the ultimate authority. We were made in God's image. Thus, every human being should be free to serve God and be governed by God with limited intervention from the state. Sadly, at times, we've applied freedom unequally, but its concept has originated from the Christian scriptures. The American legal system was initially founded on the theories of the British jurist, William Blackstone. Blackstone believed that there were only two bases for law, nature and revelation. And according to him, the best approach was God's revelation. For Blackstone, the revealed will of God was found in the Bible. This is why from bankruptcy laws to private property rights to judgment for damages, American common law was founded on principles that we read about in the Bible. The American flag that flew from Fort Henry in 1814 was 42 feet by 30 feet. It was an enormous flag. This was the flag Francis Scott Key saw 10 miles out to sea in the midst of the battle. This is the flag that inspired our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. For years, no one knew how a flag that size could fly from a pole 189 feet tall. You would think in stormy, windy weather, the flagpole would snap. But a recent discovery solved the riddle. 
The National Park Service has now found a cross-shaped support nine feet underground near the fort's entrance. As it turns out, it was this cross-shaped beam that supported the huge flag. And this is a microcosm of Christianity's role in America. Freedom flies in our country, though often imperfectly, because of our Christian underpinnings. It is the Bible that has provided us the precepts that protect individual rights, yet at the same time bring order to a diverse and changing society. Without Christianity, America as we know it would not exist. It's true that the United States has a rich spiritual and faith-filled history. And this is why I'm proud to be an American. This is why we should continue to teach future generations of Americans the wisdom of the philosophies on which our country was built. The future of the house depends on the strength of its foundation. But what we also need to do is not confuse a flawed and feeble system of human government with God's kingdom. For earthly kingdoms will come and go, including the United States. It's the kingdom of God that is eternal. At times, American interests and God's concerns run parallel. God may use our country to accomplish his purposes, but that doesn't exempt us from God's judgment. And when we're weighed in the balance and found lacking, God will set us aside and raise up another nation to do his bidding. British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge was once speaking in Washington, D.C. Throughout his talk, he was very negative in his outlook on human affairs. After his speech, reporters asked him, you've been very pessimistic. Don't you have any reason for optimism? Muggeridge was surprised. He said, friend, I could not be more optimistic than I am. Because my hope is in Jesus Christ alone. He paused to let that thought sink in. And then he finished. Just think if the first church had pinned its hopes on the Roman Empire. Ancient Rome was proof that even superpowers, even democratic superpowers, outlived their usefulness and fall victim to sin and corruption. Yes, I am privileged to be an American. Yes, I will gladly pledge my allegiance to my country. And yes, I certainly appreciate the sacrifices of the men and women who fight to keep us free. I would even take up arms myself if my country ever needed me to do so. But do I believe God travels on an American passport? No. Do I believe Jesus is returning on Air Force One? No. Do I believe that God is indebted to America? Of course not. And do I believe he will bless us today just because he's done so in the past? Not hardly. I ran across a quote by a man named J.B. Priestley. He writes, We should behave toward our country as women behave toward the men they love. A loving wife will do anything for her husband except stop criticizing and trying to improve him. We should cast the same affectionate but sharp glance at our country. Now, ladies, I'm not trying to give you any ideas this morning. I don't want to encourage certain behaviors, but 
You get the point. We need to nag our nation toward righteousness. On the eve of the Battle of Jericho, General Joshua encountered a soldier with a drawn sword. Joshua confronted the fellow, following military protocol. He barked at him. Are you for us or for our adversary? In essence, Joshua had shouted, friend or foe. And the man had replied, neither. He was neither on Israel's side or on Jericho's side. He was on God's side. And this is the question all nations and all people have to ask themselves. Not is God on our side, but are we on his side? God's kingdom stands above all else. Understand, the Old Testament taught that the kingdom of God would be an earthly, political kingdom. The last book of the New Testament, Revelation, paints a similar picture. A day is coming when Jesus will return to earth. Our Lord will come riding a white horse, a war horse. He leads troops, the troops of the redeemed, into battle. He destroys the Antichrist and all the earth's armies. In one day, Jesus will restore order to this fallen planet. He'll right wrongs and throw down rulers and wipe out rebellion and establish his throne and enforce a true peace and bring about the restoration that God has promised throughout the word of God. Revelation 11 predicts this day when it says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. In a sense, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to pray for that day. At the end of Revelation, John sings, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. For they had. He had gotten a glimpse of apocalyptic events, which will lead up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And John's reply was to pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's interesting, at the end of John's long life, and in light of his remarkable revelations, John, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, reverts back to the very first prayer he was taught, the Lord's Prayer. In essence, he prays, your kingdom come. When I see corrupt politicians abuse our trust, or wicked businessmen prosper, or criminals get away with their crimes, or terrorists kill innocent people, or Christians persecuted, or children starving, or women sold as sex slaves, or nations at war. I long for the day when God's kingdom will rule this earth. One day, Jesus will come in great power and in great glory. He'll bring justice and healing to our fallen world. He'll establish his authority over all the kingdoms of this earth. Thus, we should always pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is one way to pray for the kingdom of God. But there's another way to pray this line in the Lord's Prayer. For in Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus speaks of the mysteries of the kingdom. The full meaning of God's kingdom isn't explained in the Old Testament prophecies or even in the book of Revelation. 
for there is more to the kingdom. Before God's kingdom comes with military might and with political prowess and with earthly glory, it comes spiritually in human hearts. The kingdom flies under the radar. It moves below the surface. Jesus referred to it as a seed. It grows, but it isn't seen. Before the kingdom appears in a tangible, visible form, it first conquers gradually and subtly and invisibly and spiritually. It is hidden in the hearts of God's people. When Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, Matthew 4 records his message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Of course, Jesus pointed to no palace. He carried no flag. He sat on no throne. He marched before no army. But Jesus had begun to build a spiritual kingdom. In one sense, Jesus was the kingdom of God in person. When Jesus returns a second time, he'll be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. But today, Jesus is the king of hearts. He rules over people. This is why Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, that is, with outward visible trappings. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Before Jesus rules over institutions, he rules over individuals. Before he occupies halls of power, he occupies the hearts of people. Today, God's kingdom comes when folks come under his sway and bow to his will and allow his grace to transform their lives from the inside out. Author Philip Rankin explains God's kingdom. It is a kingdom of the heart. It is not a territory. It is not a party politic. It is not a nation state with geographic borders. The kingdom of God is simply the rule of God. This is why to pray, your kingdom come, not only looks forward to the future, but it asks Jesus to reign right now over my marriage and my family and my work and my emotions and my play and my thoughts and my money. It's to say, Lord, permeate my life with your love and truth. Author Max Licato puts it, when you say thy kingdom come, you are inviting the Messiah himself to walk into your world. Take your throne in our land. Be present in my heart. Be present in my office. Come into my marriage. Be Lord of my family, fears and doubts. This is no feeble request. It is a bold appeal for God to occupy every corner of your life. When I think of what God is doing in the world today, I recall a dad who awoke early, early one Saturday morning. All his family was still in bed. He was looking forward to just a few minutes to himself. He wanted to read the newspaper, enjoy a cup of coffee. It was five o'clock in the morning. But no sooner had he sat down when his five-year-old daughter decided to join him. The father pleaded, honey, please go back to bed. It's not time to wake up yet. But the little girl, she just couldn't. She was ready to greet the weekend. Well, the dad opted for a distraction. He ripped a full-page picture of the earth from the newspaper. And then he tore it up into pieces. 
he handed his daughter the scraps of the pieces and a roll of scotch tape. He said, honey, I want you to go into the den and see if you can put the world back together. Well, to his dad's surprise, it took just a few minutes before his little girl returned with the task completed. The daughter showed her daddy the taped up picture. He was stunned. He asked her, he said, how were you able to put the world back together so quickly? That's when she turned the page over. On the back of the photo of the earth was a picture of a man. She didn't know a lot about geography, but she knew the shape of a man. The little girl replied, when you make the man right, you make the world right. And this is what God is doing today. He's making the world right one man and one woman at a time. I like what J.I. Packer writes of our text here in Matthew chapter 6. To pray thy kingdom come is searching and demanding. For one must be ready to add and start with me. Make me your fully obedient subject. Are you willing to live your life under the sway of Jesus? Are you willing to allow him to put back the broken pieces of your life? Put them back together and make you into what he desires? As Christians, the Bible tells us that we're citizens of heaven living on earth. Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. We're divine diplomats. We're spokespeople for the kingdom of God living among the kingdoms of men. When people walk into our assembly here at Calvary Chapel, they should get a taste of heaven by how we live, by what we believe, by how we treat one another and the love that we show. Jesus wants you and I to bring a little bit of heaven to earth. When George Shultz served as Secretary of State, he kept a large globe in his office. When meeting with a U.S. ambassador, he would always quiz them. He would ask them to walk over to the globe and to point to their country. Well, invariably, they would pick the nation to which they had been sent. And Shultz would then give them a lesson on diplomacy. He would correct them by pointing to the United States, for that was their country. Schultz wanted all of our U.S. ambassadors to remember the land that they happen to live in is not their home. Their home is the land that they represent. And the same is true for an ambassador for Christ. We are citizens of God's kingdom dispatched to this world. In the mid-70s, there was a Christian comedy group Isaac Airfreight, and they did a skit called King Me. It was really pretty funny. King Me was a man whose life was all about himself, building his own kingdom with no regard to the welfare of anyone else. Poor King Me ended up lonely and miserable. He alienated all the people he loved. He got all he wanted, but he was never satisfied. Spiritually, he died a pauper. Jesus doesn't want us to be a king me. Real joy results not from building up your kingdom, but by bowing to his. By praying, Lord, your will be done. Understand verse 10 is the bridge in the Lord's prayer. Before it, we pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, prayer begins with who God is. He is the Father who knows best. 
He is holy and one of a kind. We approach him reverently, respectfully. But after verse 10, we petition God. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're we're asking for provision and for pardon and for protection. See, the prayer starts with praise for who God is. But then it flows into petition for what God gives. Yet sandwiched in between God's greatness and our neediness is the essence of all prayer. For we want to live in God's kingdom. We want his will to be done. See, most people mistake prayer as a means of getting what they want done. They try to use God to further their ambitions or to make their own life easier. God ends up their servant rather than vice versa. Trust me, God never allows himself to be used to build up another man's kingdom. God is not inclined to support King me. Thus, we're to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before we ask, God expects us to bow. The bridge between praise and petition is surrender and humility and a commitment to God's kingdom rather than our own. In John 14, verse 13, Jesus promises, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. And people want to stop right there. They expect God to cater to their every whim. But the verse continues, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The promise of Jesus assumes that you have bowed to him before you get from him, that you're all about his name and his nature and his glory, that his desires are your desires. You know, in heaven, when God says jump, the angels say, how high? Obedience is immediate and thorough. And when that becomes your attitude, that's when you can pray for whatever you want, and God will give it to you. John Wesley once wrote a prayer that I hope to mimic. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with who you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. His poem describes a life fully devoted to God. And this is why verse 10 is the heart of the Lord's prayer. Again, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the heart of all true prayer. Surrender to God's will should color our supplications. I bring all this up because this week in America, we observe our nation's birthday or Independence Day. We celebrate the founding of our nation and the freedoms we enjoy. But I hope you know that the greatest freedom is freedom from sin and self-centeredness. It's better to live under a tyrannical dictator in this life than to live forever in a cell of sin and in the hell that follows. 
Sin enslaves us. It turns life into a cage. Pleasures that tickle us also entrap us and torment us. Sin rips us off and drags us down and degrades us. Only Jesus can deliver us and provide us true freedom. He alone can change a person from the inside out. Build your own kingdom and you'll become the proud ruler over sandcastles. You'll wake up one day having spent your one and only life on what looks so impressive yet gets washed away after the first high tide. A missionary once said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. In the end, the only pursuit that matters is building up God's kingdom and doing his will. This July 4th, I want to remind us all that though we are American citizens, first and foremost, we are citizens of heaven. And this presents a challenge True patriotism pledges allegiance to a country, but not to the exclusion of God. It's an earthly loyalty, but it refuses to ascribe absolute loyalty to anything earthly. It recalls that the kingdoms of man are all passing away. Unrestricted love and devotion belongs only to God. Christians should stand for what's pure and right and true, not just what's red and white and blue. I want to close with a patriotic song. Well, be careful. No, don't worry. I'm not singing. I'm not singing it. I'm just going to quote it to you. It's the lyrics from a poem written in 1908 by a man named Sir Cecil Spring Rice. At the time, he was serving as the British ambassador to Sweden. Later, he was the ambassador to the United States. He was the one who persuaded Woodrow Wilson to join the Allies in World War I. The song's title is Two Fatherlands. He speaks of his loyalty to two countries. The first stanza to his earthly country, the last stanza to heaven. He writes, I vow to thee, my country, all earthly things above, Entire and whole and perfect, the service of my love. The love that asks no question, the love that stands the test, that lays upon the altar the dearest and the best. The love that never falters, the love that pays the price, the love that makes undaunted the final sacrifice. And there's another country I've heard of long ago most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies. We may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart. Her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently, her shining bounds increase. And her ways are ways of gentleness. And all her paths are peace. I also have two fatherlands. Temporarily, my home is the United States of America, but eternally, I have a home in God's kingdom. And on this 4th of July, I want to pledge myself afresh to live as a patriot of both my countries, as a great American, but more so as a committed Christian. I hope you'll take that same pledge.
Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word, for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for the kingdom that has come and that will come. Lord, we pray this prayer afresh today, Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we acknowledge and we're so thankful for the Christian heritage that has made America what it is. Lord, we thank you for our founding fathers and their faithfulness to Christian principles and Christian truth. Lord, forgive us for having strayed from those precepts and principles. And Lord, help us to commit ourselves today to working to return America to its Christian roots, reminding the people around us uh, how we've developed into the country that we are. But Lord, even more than that, we thank you that we're part of your kingdom, that your kingdom will transcend all others. Lord, we thank you for our King, Lord Jesus, and we pledge afresh today to follow him. And Lord, may your kingdom begin in our hearts today, in our heart, in our marriage, in our relationships, in our church, in our homes. Be king over our lives, Lord Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,